Today's episode of Art of the Cut is sponsored by ncrawl.com. ncrawl is the web-based platform for managing and rendering end credits, used by over 1,000 film productions, including 42 films at this year's Sundance 2020 Film Festival. Sign up today at ncrawl.com slash AOTC. Hello, and welcome to Art of the Cut's Voices from Sundance. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a film editor, and I interview my colleagues in film and TV. Today's voice from Sundance is Sophie Marshall. Her business card claims that in addition to being an editor, she's a workflow expert. After our discussion, I believe her completely. Marshall has been editing for about a decade, having cut 20 indie features in that time and numerous shorts. Our discussion today is about the Sundance sci-fi comedy, Save Yourselves. Tell me a little bit about the film. Sure. Uh, the film is called Save Yourselves. It's about a Brooklyn couple that decides they're too uh, invested in their technology and their phones and not each other. So they decide to go to upstate New York to a remote cabin, turn off their cell phones, no internet, and kind of reconnect with each other. While they're there, aliens invade the planet and start wreaking havoc, and they don't know because they're not looking at any of the news. Um, eventually, they start to see weird things happening and figure out what's going on and then have to figure out how they're going to survive in that situation. When you built the first assembly, did you go strictly by the script? Yeah, I, I mostly did. Um, for the first assembly that I show people, I like it to be as close to the script as possible so that the directors can see everything they shot on set, everything that they have to work with. They can see how all the lines are playing. Even if I don't think something's working, I'll keep it in and I'll just note, like, I think there's something going wrong here or whatever, just so they know everything that's going that they have. And I think for this film, the script was very tight, very well written. Um, there was, we didn't end up doing a ton of reordering in the edit. We cut some stuff out, but it was very, very well done as far as structure goes. I'm always interested in that idea that there's those three parts of the movie, right? There's the movie that you write, the movie you shoot, and the movie you edit, mm -hmm, and they're all exactly. different. And so I still have not got a, gotten a good answer, even from myself, of why that happens. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. Um, so I've been editing for a really long time. And more recently, I've started writing. And it's been really cool for me to see the crossover in skill between the two, the two forms. Um, they're very, very similar. And so as an editor, something that I always would say to myself is that every movie, the first act is 20 pages overwritten. Um, every time we're having trouble with a film, the most cutting comes out of those first 20 minutes. 100%. Um, and then I noticed in my own writing, halfway through the process, I just had this moment where I, I turned to my partner and I said, we overwrote the first 20 minutes of our, of our feature here. So I think it's just, it's hard to tell in the writing process, um, how it's going to feel in the edit. You can, you can do as best you can with rhythm and, and kind of get a sense of how it will play out. But once you have the characters, the actors there actually saying the lines, just the timing changes. And that just is going to change the way that you put things together and where the endpoints of certain scenes are. And I don't know that there's a better way to really anticipate that. I don't think there is, or else somebody would have come up with it a <laughs> <laughs> hundred years into cinema. Tell me what you learned uh, or what, what happened when you watched that first uh, rough cut assembly mm -hmm. and what were your thoughts? What was, what was the director's thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was, it was long. Um, it was over two hours. I think the, the biggest thought was going into that and trying to understand the potential, understand what we had. So of course this is a comedy and rhythm and timing is super important. It, it's going to make or break every single joke. So in that first assembly, 
the jokes were all there, but they were sort of prototype versions of the jokes. Um, and there were different options about how we could go and what tonality we could use. I think in that first assembly, everything felt a little long and of course it needed to be uh, quickened up and the performances were kind of in the middle and something that we would go into that thinking is which way do we want to push them do, which scenes do we want to push goofy which scenes do we want to push serious um how do we want the tonality of these jokes to play with the more dramatic scenes that happen so there was a lot of thought going into that first watch but with all of that said i think it was very clear to everyone involved even on that first watch that the movie was there everything was good nobody needed to panic and something great was going to come out of it I love the idea of the tonality and, and trying to figure out what the tonal changes are going to be mm -hmm. or or what the tonal transitions are going to be. Can you give us some examples or what were some of those discussions around tonality? and? Tone? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, at its heart, the movie is a relationship story um, about a couple who is trying to connect with each other. And so we really wanted to make sure that that stayed in the movie, even though it's a comedy. Um, so sort of towards the middle of the movie that they have kind of a serious fight with each other. And even the fight has jokes built into it, but we didn't want to step on the, we didn't want it to feel too light. We want people to understand, oh, this was a moment for them that they're going to have to get over in some way in order to move forward. So that that area of the film, for example, was was something that we massaged a lot in terms of when should we be funny? How How kind of dark can we get before we should throw in the joke and will the joke feel good or will it feel like it's interrupting a moment that we wanted to have stayed in yeah mm -hmm. and when you're cutting the individual scenes obviously you're probably shooting out of order mm -hmm. and when you're cutting a scene you're just trying to make the scene kind of as good as it can be mm -hmm. so you don't know where the tone should be because you don't have the the uh, context yeah so did you have any time before you showed the first assembly to go, ooh, the tone is wrong? Or did you just assemble it and go, now we're going to figure yeah, it out? Yeah, no, no, I didn't do that. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I could I could do that, but I, I try not to do that. The way I usually like to do it is um, if I'm cutting during production, probably a week after wrap, I'll have my assembly. And then I like to sit with that for another week or so and watch the whole thing straight through and do exactly that type of work. Be like, okay, this scene works really well on its own, but when it's in between these two scenes, the in the in and out is totally wrong the transition doesn't work or figure out well the tonality of this scene back to back with this scene isn't right and you're never going to get it perfect on i just don't really have time and i don't you know it's 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 more valuable to me to get the director's input at some point as well but yeah i do try to even it out and kind of make it as watchable as possible before i show it to them it's something that i fight for for, for two reasons one because it gives me more opportunity to get used to all the footage and know what everything is. And it also gives the directors a little break after wrap so that they can come back to the process excited to watch the movie and have a little bit of distance from the shoot. Well, also there's the thought, right, that uh, you can never watch the film for the first time twice. Right, right? exactly. So the closer you are on that first draft, the better that experience is going to mm -hmm. be with the director. Yeah, absolutely. Um, talk to me a little bit about your relationship with the director. How did you get the gig? Mm -hmm. Is it somebody you've worked with before? And uh, how did you collaborate? So uh, this film is co-directed. Um, Alex and Eleanor, they're a real-life couple, and they both do their own film, film work as well. And I hadn't met them before, but they were familiar with, with my work from um, other indie films that I had cut that they had seen. And we 
were part of a lot of the same circles. We knew a lot of the same people. So they had kind of heard about me when they put the feelers out for an editor through other people. Um, and it's funny, for some reason, they didn't have my email address. So they contacted me via my website contact form, um, <laughs> which is not where I usually expect to get, you know, job job requests um, for a feature for a feature. <laughs> but uh, it was the producer who who sent me a message and it was very sweet. And, you know, she said that she she knew me from, you know, some of my previous work. And I just got a good feeling about it and had them send over the script. And I read the script and I really liked it. And then I had a Skype so that so that Alex and Eleanor, the directors were in LA at the time. And we just got on Skype and they were lovely. And we had a very good vibe. And um, that was pretty much it. Since we're kind of talking about these, a lot of discussions I have with other editors, like, oh, I've had this relationship with this director for years or whatever. Um, since this is a almost a cold call situation, mm-hmm. tell me about that Skype call and what, how much of it did you even bother pitching your skills and how much did you just want to like, you feel me out, I feel you out, we needed, we're going to need to be in the same dark room for a year. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a lot more of that. It's a lot more, I mean, the relationship is so, so special between the editor and the director. Like you, you see, as the editor, you see a lot of the director's vulnerabilities in the moment. You have to really coach them through when they're feeling upset about the film or hopeless or a scene just isn't working. You have to kind of be able to really support them in that process. So they need to be people that you like being with. Um, And I think the other stuff as far as skills and who are they, I think at this point, what I do is I just look them up beforehand. And I, and so I saw that Alex um, had worked with a bunch of people that I had worked with on previous projects on uh, something that I thought was really fun. So that was a great sign already. And I think for them, they had already seen my work. So they knew, I don't think there was a question of, you know, are you skilled or are you not skilled? They liked what they saw. So yeah, that that first Skype was just about, are we excited to move forward on this together? Are we on the same page creatively? Is there a good vibe? And and you you mentioned that you looked them up and kind of tried to get a feel for them. But Mm -hmm. what did you do to try to give them a sense that, like you said, that you, they knew you figured that they knew that you could do the work. Mm-hmm. So, what's the interview about for you? To yeah, going to them. It's funny. Um, editor interviews can be really awkward sometimes because a lot of times people don't know what, what to ask you. Um, I think for this one, it was often I'll talk about my kind of process, how I like to approach a film and see, I'll be watching them to see like, you know, how do they respond to that? Is that in line with how they want to do it? On this call in particular, um, Alex and Eleanor both know Premiere, they know how to edit themselves. And so a question that they were a little nervous to ask, but but did was, how open are you to collaboration? If we want to get in there and tinker with the project, is that cool with you? And it totally was. Um, I love that. I love being collaborative in the process. So I think that once that question was out there and we realized we were on the same page about that, that was kind of like a big relief. And they're like, great, this person is someone that would be really good for this project. Uh, you mentioned that they knew Premiere. Is, how did uh, how did the, that decision to use Premiere get made by them? Um, I mean, I've been using it almost exclusively for, for I don't know, maybe the past five or six years. Um, it's pretty much what, what the indie films use right now. Um, I love it for many reasons and it's what they knew and I knew that they it was important for them to be involved with the edit so there was kind of no reason not to use it like I think it would have been impossible for them to have learned Avid 
you know, and been able to get in there. And if I wanted to stop them from doing that, I could have done that. But I was completely fine with collaboration. So it just seemed like the, the best option for the project. You said there's a bunch of stuff about Premiere that you like. What What's some of that stuff that you like? And have you have you edited on Avid? Yeah, I have. So what's the difference between the two programs for you? Um, so a little bit of my kind of background with, with the different NLEs is I started on Final Cut um, and Premiere kind of at the same time. My school had Macs with Final Cut, and at home I had a PC with Premiere. So I was very aware of the way that those two programs work, which is a lot of drag and drop, a lot of... Um, grabbing things in the timeline and moving them and manipulating them that way. So that's kind of how I learned to edit. And then when I got to college, my college was all Avid. And when I learned Avid, it kind of just blew my mind about the way that editing works. Um, in, in that version of Avid, you didn't touch the timeline at all. Uh, you, you just, everything was basically an insert edit. Um, you did trimming with the keyboard. Everything was keyboard based. You didn't have gaps in the timeline. You couldn't just like pick up half your movie and slide it over. It just wasn't how that program was designed to work. And when I realized that that was how the professionals edited, I understood why, because it's so much faster to be able to do that. Um, So what I ended up doing from that background was applying that to the other programs. And Premiere is completely capable of doing the exact same thing, even though a lot of people don't know it. A lot of people come from Final Cut, so they use it with manipulating the timeline with their mouse. Um, I cut in Premiere almost entirely with the keyboard. I use dynamic trimming. I cut with an entire uh, feature film on one timeline. I don't like to break it up into reels. Um, And I just use the keyboard trim features to just add frames here and there. It's very responsive. um, And I think that that's what I love about Premiere. I can work in Premiere that way. And the directors who don't know how to do that can work in it however they want. It's open to however you want to do it. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Save Yourselves editor, Sophie Marshall. I'm really excited to have Ncrawl as a sponsor. If you've ever been through the end credits process in Final Post, you already know why someone had to create this product. What's interesting though, is how they went about it. Their cloud render engine turns around preview renders in minutes and 2K and 4K renders in about half an hour. The Ncrawl render engine is on demand 24-7, so even if you're in a late night editing session, you can sign into your project, fix that typo, and add that late breaking special thanks, and with one click, get your new render fast. And here's the best part, renders are unlimited. Ncrawl has a freemium tier, and they offer free personal demo projects to all working industry professionals. Right now, there's actually a wait list, but if you sign up now with our special link, you can jump to the front of the line. That's ncrawl.com slash AOTC. Again, that's ncrawl.com slash AOTC. And now, back to my interview with Save Yourselves editor, Sophie Marshall. Uh, you mentioned editing with the entire movie in the timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, how responsive has Premiere been with that much media in a single timeline? Honestly, it's it's fine. I mean, I, I almost always edit uh, with proxies, so I'll be cutting on something like HD... ProRes, LT, or something like that. So the the footage is lightweight and pretty responsive. And yeah, it it's fine. I mean, the only time that it does get slow is if you try to like grab half the timeline and move it over, you'll wait like, I don't know, four seconds for it to kind of bump over. Um, but mostly I just use dynamic trimming. So if I'm trying to add 10 seconds to a shot, I'll just do it on the keyboard and it does it in real time 
like you're playing or rewinding or fast forwarding or, or anything like that. Um, and it's really just really useful to me to be able to always see the entire movie laid out like that. If it's broken up into reels, then I have to click through other timelines or I have to click to the timeline that has all the reels assembled and click through to make the edits. I like to just be able to on the fly adjust everything. Well, as long as it's being responsive. And, and I cut on a laptop exclusively um, on a MacBook Pro and it's responsive on that. So yeah, it's really not a problem for me. I gotta say that's probably because of the use of the latent media. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it, it definitely wouldn't work if I had like 4K footage or something, but I wouldn't, I would never edit a feature with that footage anyway. Sound advice for those of you. <laughs> There's so many people that are like, I want to edit in 4K. I'm like, why? Yeah, it's not. I also, like I said, I, I cut on a laptop. Um, I travel. I like to edit where I am. Um, I don't I don't always just, I actually, do, I, I don't subscribe to the sit in a dark room as an editor philosophy. I think that's it's a little like outdated. You don't need to do that. You can edit wherever you are, whatever makes you happy to do it. So when I have the proxies, I just keep them on a little portable USB drive and I can edit anywhere and it's it's really easy. How do you collaborate with the directors on uh, on a laptop? Do you have a, you know, a black magic or something to a big screen? What do you yeah, do? Yeah, that's exactly what I have. Um, in I, I mostly edit from from home and I have a setup there where my laptop is connected via via the black magic output device to a big 4K you know, monitor and the directors will sit and they'll watch that and I'll just work off the laptop. But other, other than it being a laptop and not a desktop, it's totally the same. Uh, do you use a second monitor at all or just always one single monitor? Sometimes I do. Um, it's funny though. I've just always edited on a laptop and it's easy for me. I, I, if I need something to be bigger, I'll just use the function that makes that panel and premiere full screen. Um, if I need to, but it's, I don't need all of that visual space. My, I'm set up so that I can see my, obviously my screen and I can see the client monitor as well. So if I need to watch something bigger, I'll, I just look at the client monitor and watch it that way. How are you setting up projects where they could tinker? Where they, did you just have a, a project in the cloud or something that they could? Yeah. So we, we had a pretty cool system worked out. Um, we each had copies of the media on, on our own hard drives. Um, they were actually in LA for the whole edit and I was in New York for, for the edit. Um, so the way that we made this work, so that we each had media, we used Dropbox to do to store all media that was being updated a lot, like uh, VFX comps, music, score, and sound effects. Anytime either of us added something to the project, it would go right on Dropbox to make reconnecting easy. They had their master project, I had my master project, and our projects were set up identically. Um, and if they wanted to tinker with something, they would do it in their project. And then they would send either the project or they would just take out that timeline and send me a, a smaller project. And I would import that into mine and, and just add it to my master project. So my project always had kind of all of their stuff and all of my stuff and the recent stuff up to date. Um, and then we ended up, uh, I kind of set up a system so that I could stream my edit to them over the internet. Um, so I used a, a I, th I don't, I had never heard of it until I figured this out. There's a Blackmagic product called the Blackmagic Web Presenter. It is uh, an encoding piece of hardware. It's really small. It's a little box. And what it does is it takes any video signal and encodes it into a really stable, um, low bandwidth 720 um, kind of webcam signal. So for, from my laptop, I had an HDMI out into that Blackmagic device. 
And then I had that Blackmagic device plugged in via USB as a webcam. And then I used Zoom, which is like a video conferencing software to take the feed from the Blackmagic device, which was set to output from my Premiere uh, preview window. So basically I streamed in pretty much real time, almost no latency, my anything that I was doing in Premiere, they could see it on the fly in real time. We did, you know, frame edits, all that kind of stuff. We would work together maybe like four to six hours a day just over Zoom. I could see them, we could hear each other. I used a program called um, Loopback to kind of patch the audio so that I was wearing headphones with a, with a microphone. So the audio would come out of Premiere into my headphones, but also route through the Blackmagic device and over to them. So everything was synced. Um, like if I hit stop on the timeline, it stopped on their end within like a couple of milliseconds. It was an awesome setup that, that really just made the coast to coast thing work super well. Wow. I am incredibly <laughs> impressed. And I'll say the reason that I, uh, that I was able to do that is because in Final Cut Pro 7, they had a feature that nobody knew about called iChat Theater. And in Final Cut 7, you could stream your edit through iChat um, beautifully, perfectly, right from the program. And I edited one of my early features using that when I was a little, uh, it wasn't convenient for the director and I to be in the same place. And then that feature went away, you know, with all the changes. And ever since then, I've been like really searching for how to fill that gap, how to make that happen, because I knew that it could happen. And then after tons of searching, I finally like came up with this, this very complicated way to do it, but also very cheap way to do it. Um, all, all in, it's like under 500 bucks to get this thing set up. And, and it works really well. Mm -hmm. I did a, um, a feature with Premiere where I did the exact same thing with Dropbox, where we had two identical projects with all the media in two separate places, a uh, director in uh, Atlanta and me in Chicago, and it worked perfectly. Yeah, and um, I mean, it, it's it's interesting. It's always a, a collection of tools, too. We also used Frame.io a bunch um, to, they you know, they have an integrated Premiere panel. So when I was sending them uh, some of my cuts, I would just use markers on the timeline and and write notes, and then they would just get uploaded right to Frame.io, and then they could comment on those, and I could import their notes on my notes back into the project and work that way. So we just had like a, a big ecosystem of a lot of the different tools working together to make the coast-to-coast -coast edit really seamless. Yep, I use Frame.io too. Um, let's see, what else? Um, tell me about your process. So when you um, get a new... Um, a bin full of media or you've organized a bunch of stuff into a bin and mm -hmm. it's scene 12, uh, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, usually what I do is I read the scene in the script um, and just kind of get a sense for what's before it and what's after it. Um, I'll kind of see, I'll so I'll always get the bin totally organized by my assistant and it'll have all of the script supervisor notes in that bin too so I can see what comments were made on set and how it works that way. And the way that, that I have my assistants label it is I'll be able to just see at a glance, like how many setups were there, how much coverage is there. Um, if it's a very big scene, I'll you know, procrastinate for a minute or two before <laughs> I dive in, but I'll just kind of click through each shot and get a sense of like, what, what do we have here? Um, and then I just kind of turn off my intellect and just go. I just pick a, a, a shot that I liked when I was looking at things to start with and then just go from there and try to get a, a cutout as quickly as I can. Then I'll usually watch that back once or twice, 
fix stuff that I think isn't really working, but then I'll kind of just leave it and I'll move on to the next scene. Um, cause I don't, I don't like to spend a crazy amount of time getting each scene working really well by itself because in a feature, you just don't know what you're, what that scene's actually going to do until you kind of have it placed in the movie. So I'll just kind of try to quickly go through everything. And then once I have an assembly, when they're done shooting, I'll go back in and, and kind of work through as we were talking about earlier that that process. But even though you're editing those scenes quickly, are you working on multiple tracks of audio and sound effects and and um, ambience and music? Talk to me a little bit about building out the scene before yeah. you give up on it. So <laughs> on my first pass, I'll put I'll only put in um, sound effects and stuff like that if it's if I can't really understand the scene without it. If there's like um, you know, a phone call that interrupts a line or something like that. I'll, I'll pull that in and put that in. If for whatever reason, um, the scene needs a lot of um, ambience, like I'll go and kind of fill in room tone so that, so that it's watchable. I always want it to be watchable. Um, but like heavy sound work, I'll, I'll leave that for once the movie is all out on the timeline and I can get a sense of, of how everything's working just because it's like a different part of my brain, I think that does that. If I'm doing creative stuff and making creative decisions. I want to just keep doing that for, for most of the day. And then once that's done, then it's a little like, you know, the hardest thing as a writer is staring at the blank page and, and doing something. Once you have something on that page, revising is a little bit more palatable. So I kind of approach editing the same way. I just want to get it all out there. And then I'll spend lots of time going back through it and fixing it up and getting those sound effects in that it needs and evening out the color if it's impacting the watchability of it. Yeah, you don't want things to bump. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about temp. Like what, when you are sitting um, maybe with a script before you have anything, I don't know how many, whether you had a day or two before the movie started mm -hmm. delivering dailies, did you think, oh, this movie is kind of like these other movies or how did you decide on what temp to pull into to the to a bin or something. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about temp music? Temp or? music, I'm yeah. sorry, yeah, temp music. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends a lot on the film. I mean, usually the way that I do it is that I don't think about temp until a little bit later in the process. My first cuts generally don't have music unless the directors had very specific thoughts about music, and a lot of times they do, and they did actually, for a couple scenes in this film, they, they already had certain tracks that they wanted. But for me, if you put in the wrong temp music and the director watches your scene with something that they don't like, that's kind of detrimental to the process. Like the director is always going to Because right, just pulling the music out at that point is not going to... Right. The scene is they, they branded as bad. Yes, they remember what they saw. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a very tough process for a director to watch that first cut. Um, no matter how good the editor is, no matter what it looks like, it's sort of like a moment of reckoning. Oh, this is what we shot. This is what we have. You know, what are we going to do with this? This stuff that we thought was working isn't working. And that scene that we hated is actually one of the better scenes. They're going through so much stuff when they watch that I, I like to direct their attention to the footage, to the performances, to the coverage that we have. And I don't want to put something in there that their comment is going to be like, well, I hated the temp music because um, that, that's not good for anyone. So that for me, usually becomes pretty collaborative as once we're a little further along in the edit. Sure, and but that's tricky too because it depends on the director. Because a lot of directors oh, yeah. they want either d definitely don't want to hear music or they definitely do want to hear music. Mm -hmm. And if you're not giving them music, then you got to know. Right? Yeah, if they want to hear it, I will definitely ask them to give me a bunch of 
samples to give me a lot of direction or to have the music supervisor just pull a bunch of stuff that's in the vein of what they think they want. Um, especially if it's like, you know, I cut before this one, I cut a horror comedy and that needed a lot of music. And for that, I had a lot of options pulled by the, the music supervisor and the directors had a strong idea of what they thought they wanted. So we had like a big bin of kind of approved temp tracks to work for in that vein. Um, but yeah, it's tough to just try and pull something out of nothing and, and hope that it works. So I do like to get a lot of input if I'm going to do something like that. I would love to talk to you for another hour if I could, but we are out of time and it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This was great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Art of the Cuts Voices from Sundance podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a Topic-Driven, Curated Experience. Be sure to check out my podcast of interviews with more of the world's top editors on my regular Art of the Cut podcast. And be sure to check out my podcast of interviews with more of the world's top editors on my regular Art of the Cut podcast. Thanks again to my guest, Sophie Marshall. I'm Steve Holtfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Holtfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and make sure to tell a film-making or film-loving friend. <laughs> <laughs>